Hey, listeners of the Bio Report, I want to tell you about a new member benefit from the California Technology Council. CTC has teamed with Reprovada to offer members six months of Reprovada's COT Network service for free, which gives companies the power of a VPN at a fraction of the cost. A remote, flexible workforce is the new normal, but most corporate networks aren't built to accommodate work from home at scale. Reprovada's COT Network offers an easily deployable, affordable, and scalable solution to securely enable remote workers and protect the corporate network. To learn more about this and other member benefits, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. As a medical student, David Feigenbaum nearly died from Castleman disease, a rare autoimmune condition. He would suffer recurring bouts that carried him to the brink of death, but was able to push the disease into remission by discovering a drug that could be repurposed to treat the disease. Feigenbaum co-founded the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network and developed a unique approach to research that's now being adopted by other rare disease organizations. He tells the story in his book, Chasing My Cure. When the COVID-19 outbreak began, Feigenbaum recognized that the deadliest aspect of the disease, a hyperactive immune response known as a cytokine storm, shared a common link with Castleman disease. He hoped that a researcher would apply his approach to finding a potential drug to repurpose to treat the virus and soon enlisted his own team to do so. We spoke to Feigenbaum, assistant professor at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and co-founder and executive director of the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, about his own experience, how it led him to COVID-19, and his effort to help researchers and clinicians track all of the drugs being tried to treat the pandemic virus. David, thanks for joining us. Danny, thanks so much for having me. We're going to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic, your research efforts, and how you're trying to do for COVID-19 what you did for Castleman's disease. Listeners of our sister podcast, Rarecast, will be familiar with you and your story. But before we talk about COVID-19 and the work you're doing there, I, I think it would be useful to start with your own experiences with Castleman's disease. This is a, a story you tell in your book, Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action, which I recommend to all listeners. But let's start with you becoming ill in medical school. What happened? So I went from training to become an oncologist. I had lost my mom to cancer just a few years before and wanted to exact revenge on cancer. And I went from training to become an oncologist and being a healthy third-year medical student to experiencing multi-organ failure, my liver, my kidneys, my bone marrow, 
My heart and my lungs began to shut down for an unknown reason. They hospitalized me and quickly sent me to the intensive care unit where I had a retinal hemorrhage that made me blind in my left eye. I gained 70 pounds of fluid and I drifted in and out of consciousness for, for months at a time. I was eventually diagnosed with idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease which as you mentioned is a rare and deadly immune system disorder, which unfortunately at the time had to be treated with chemotherapy because there, there were no other options. And thankfully chemotherapy saved my life, but I was actually so sick right before I received chemotherapy that I actually had my last rites read to me by a priest because the doctors didn't think I would survive. And I really considered that moment to be the start of my overtime and time that I didn't think I would have. But thankfully, I survived with chemo. But unfortunately, I would go on to have relapse after relapse after relapse until I eventually found a drug that could save my life. Well, listeners who want to know that story in greater depth can go to the Rarecast podcast and find the edition we did with you. But what exactly did you do to find a drug that could be repurposed to treat Castleman's disease? Sure. After the, the fourth time that I nearly died battling this disease, and, and while I was actually on the only drug that has ever undergone a randomized control trial for my disease, and that drug did not work, I realized I could no longer just hope that some researcher somewhere would figure out a drug that could save me. And at this stage, I was a third-year medical student, so I, I dove into the lab and I started doing laboratory experiments. I started a foundation called the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network. And when I relapsed again about a year later, I was in a position to collect samples on myself and store them so if I survived that I could perform experiments on those samples. And, and thankfully, chemotherapy saved my life again. And I survived and I performed a series of experiments in the lab and looked at a, a number of data sets and databases to be able to try to put together a pattern that I was observing and eventually found a particular communication line called the mTOR pathway, which is really important for uh, many cells in your body, particularly immune cells, to communicate with one another. I found that that was in a hyperactive state. And I thought, well, maybe if we can inhibit this particular communication line, maybe that could save my life. And um, there's a drug that's already FDA approved that is called serolimus that we began testing on me. And um, now it's been over six years that I've been in remission. And, and this concept of what's called drug repurposing is a concept that's become um, pretty widely recognized recently with COVID-19. It's the idea that you can take a drug approved for something else and it may have activity um, against a disease that no one ever thought was possible. And, and in this case, I'm living proof. I'm, I'm chatting with you today uh, and alive because of a drug that was developed for a completely different condition. One of the things you wanted to do in creating the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network was changed the way research was being done into the disease. What was wrong with the way research was being conducted? Sure. So the traditional approach to rare disease research is quite similar to the traditional approach to more common disease research. And that's where you raise a lot of money and then you invite the best researchers in the world to use the money how they think it should be used. And when you have billions of dollars and thousands of applicants vying for money, say from the NIH um, or for a common disease, um, then it's very likely that some of those applications are going to be really stellar and that it's going to be an amazing idea proposed by an amazing researcher who has all the skills. Now, if you have a rare disease, 
you might only have a handful of people applying for your grant and your grant's going to be many times smaller. And so it becomes really unlikely that the best researcher in the world for a given type of research is going to have the skill set and the interest to apply for your particular rare disease grant. And so what that means is that you give out small grants to researchers who who have good ideas, but they may not be the best ideas and they may not, they may have good skill sets, but they may not have the best skill sets for your given disease. And so we went about trying to change that. We created something called the collaborative network approach, which I, I describe a lot in Chasing My Cure. And it's this idea that um, rather than raising money and hoping the right researcher applies for the right project at the right time, we crowdsourced amongst a group of patients, physicians, and researchers to determine what is the most important research study that needs to be done and who is the best person in the world to do that study. It gets away from hoping the right person applies to figuring out what is the right thing and then making sure that you can go in and recruit the right person to do the work. Um, it's, a, it's a real paradigm shift, but it's actually a, a really simple concept. Um, and so the Castleman's community has really um, gotten behind this concept, and we've been able to make tremendous progress by really flipping from a reactive model where we just hope the right person applies to a very proactive, community-sourced, um, community-built model. When the pandemic began to emerge, you started thinking back on your own experience. What's the case for repurposing an existing drug to address COVID-19? Yeah, I, I found myself hoping that some researcher out there would um, follow the approach we took against Castleman disease and, and uh, effectively and systematically track drugs that could be repurposed. And uh, shortly after beginning to hope that someone would do it, I I realized that, you know, I found myself in a position like this once before when I was hoping a researcher somewhere would figure out a drug for me. And I'm alive today because I decided to take action. I turned my hope into action. So I thought I should follow my own advice and um, try to turn my hope into action and, and decided to throw my hat in the ring against COVID-19. I have a 13-member lab where we study cytokine storms. So Castleman disease causes this hyperactivation of the immune system and a cytokine storm, which causes many of us um, to die from the disease. And actually, that is the most deadly part of COVID-19 is the cytokine storm that it ignites. And so we knew we had the expertise when it comes to this kind of a disease. We knew we had the experience when it comes to drug repurposing, and we felt like we had an obligation to um, to join in the fight. And so um, my lab, the 13 of us, uh, decided to focus on COVID-19. We also um, enlisted a number of volunteers from the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network and even outside of the CDCN um, to begin uh, on this really um, ambitious effort to go through all of the published papers worldwide on COVID-19 to pull out every single instance of any drug that has been used to treat any patient with COVID-19. So far, we've gone through over 4,000 published papers. We've pulled out data on over 11,000 patients, and we found that about 150 different drugs have been tried to treat the first 11,000 patients. So this highlights that doctors are trying drugs against COVID-19. There is a good bit of off-label drug use and drug repurposing that's happening. What wasn't happening was a systematic attempt to track all of those drugs and which drugs were being used which drugs seem to be more effective than others. And so we, we um, have taken that upon ourselves to do. So we're tracking all these drugs. Um, we're manually um, doing the work to pull it together. Um, but it, thankfully, there are a number of labs that are also um, 
performing what are called high throughput drug screens, where they're looking for compounds that no one would even think to try against COVID-19 and testing them on cell lines. And many of those are moving forward to clinical trials. And as soon as the data come out, then we immediately put them into our database. So there's a there's a cycle that's occurring right now from um, ideation and, and discovery in the lab through testing in humans to evaluation by our group. And then ideally, the most promising drugs that are being given off-label will then move on to randomized controlled trials so we can get really solid data on what's working and what's not. The database you've created, you call Corona, the COVID-19 registry of off-label and new agents. This is a collection of all that information that you've gathered and structured and analyzed. Who has access to it and how can they view it? So anyone can access it. We've made it free and, and publicly available. So if you go to cdcn.org slash corona, you can access there. You Once you get to that website, you're one click away and it'll take you to just an open source spreadsheet with all of this information. We have about 30 volunteers that are going through it and manually updating it. Um, but if you just click on it and you're not one of those 30 volunteers, you can just immediately see it. You won't be able to edit the database, but you can look at it. And how do you hope that data gets used? So I hope it gets used in three ways. Um, the first way is by treating physicians that are seeing patients with COVID-19. By going to this database, you can see what are the drugs that are being used by other doctors? Um, what are the drugs being used most frequently, less, least frequently? Not to say that you should take one drug over another or give one drug to your patient over another, but to understand what are kind of your menu of things that other doctors have tried previously. Um, I think that anytime you're making a decision, it's always nice if it's a multiple choice answer that you have and you can pick between things as opposed to um, having to make a decision kind of free of, you know, free of data or free of options. So we want to provide that information to physicians. Um, we also want to make the data available to researchers. I mentioned that there are researchers doing really important work in laboratories to identify promising compounds that should maybe go on to clinical trials. Well, the good news is, is that about 150 drugs have been tried already. And so if a researcher finds a drug that looks promising, they can go into that database and they can pull out and see, has that drug already been tried? And let me look into the literature and understand a little bit more about how effective or ineffective it already was and maybe prevent moving forward to a clinical trial if that doesn't make sense. Um, and then the third group of people that I think it's important are regulatory agencies, healthcare um, organizations like WHO, to be able to see what are the drugs that are being used on the front lines right now against this disease. Um, because when we think about some of the more um, resource-limited areas of the world, many of these drugs are actually just not available there. And so it may be useful for these public health organizations to get an idea for, well, what's being used in, in some countries, and maybe should those same drugs be made available in more uh, resource limited countries. And, and, and the truth is, as, as you know, um, no matter how high resourced your country is, very little is known about how to treat this. And so, so in my opinion, I think that data um, is the key to solving problems and that um, as, as much as we can get into a, a data filled zone and away from a data free zone, I think we're going to be better off. Has anything surprised you about what you've seen in that data or how it's being used? Yeah, I think the most surprising thing is just how heterogeneous COVID-19 is. And so, you know, the, as, as you already know, there are patients that 
have asymptomatic infections with COVID-19. They literally show no signs of the infection. And then there are other people who will die in the ICU due to multi-organ failure and a cytokine storm. And so the heterogeneity across this disease from some people being asymptomatic to others dying makes it really, really hard to assess drugs across cohorts. Meaning that if you give one drug to one group of patients and it works in all of the patients, you could have potentially given that exact same drug to another group where it wouldn't have worked in any of them because they have such different cases of the same disease. Um, and that makes it really hard to evaluate drugs and why it's really important. You've probably heard a lot of people say the importance of randomized controlled trials. Well, because the disease is so heterogeneous, what you really need to do is to randomly assign patients into either getting one drug or another drug, or either getting one drug or no drug at all. And when you randomly assign them into those two groups, if one group is better than the other, then you can believe that maybe it's because of the drug um, that they did better off, or maybe they do better off with no drug at all. Um, but by randomly assigning similar patients into two different groups, you can assess that um, right now, um, there are a lot of what are called open label or single arm studies where um, drugs are showing that, or you can give a drug to a patient and some people get better and some people don't. And what's not clear is how well those patients would have done um, if they hadn't gotten the drug at all. And so our work that we're doing is really about inventorying all the things that are being given and providing a menu for the things that we should be considering for randomized controlled trials. You mentioned the shared feature between Castleman disease and COVID-19 of cytokine storms. That's uh, something you know both as a, a patient and a researcher. Are you looking at the mTOR pathway and its role in COVID-19 at all? We're looking at every aspect of the cytokine storm that we've been studying in Castleman disease. So one of the most promising drugs out right now or that's being under, under investigation right now is a drug called tocilizumab, which was developed for Castleman disease 30 years ago. Um, it targets um, the IL-6 receptor. IL-6 is an important molecule that the immune, the immune system uses to fight infections. Well, it turns out that if you have too much of it, you get really, really sick. And so but based on this drug being developed for Castleman's 30 years, years ago, it's now being tried against COVID-19. There's another drug called siltuximab that's also really promising. It blocks IL-6 directly. So we're really optimistic that this other, it's actually the only drug approved for Castleman disease in the US. We're really optimistic that that drug could be effective. And then absolutely, we are looking at other drugs like serolimus that target the mTOR pathway, like cyclosporin that targets T-cell activation. These are drugs that have been used in Castleman disease, um, serolimus more recently, but tocilizumab, siltuximab for years. So these, So basically anything that's part of our Castleman's playbook um, is under you know intense scrutiny and investigation right now for the role that it might play in COVID-19 because as you said, there are so much similarities or so many similarities between the hyperinflammation that we see in both of these conditions. And is your team actually getting involved in clinical studies of any of these molecules? So we're um, right now uh, reviewing the data with um, a group at Penn, a, a group, uh, a scientific review panel to determine if we think that um, that any of these drugs have a really strong rationale to move forward to a human clinical trial. Um, and I think probably within the next couple of weeks, we'll be able to have a formal decision um, about if we are going to move forward with, with launching a new trial. Because right now, our effort has basically been 
looking at all of the data out there, synthesizing it into one place, analyzing those data points, and then in parallel trying to propose drugs that could be used for trials by other researchers, this would be the first time we would then say, based on our data, based on our experience, we're now going to actually open up this new trial. Um, and I think that probably in the next couple of weeks, I could give you a definitive answer. The pandemic has impacted all aspects of life, but biomedical research in particular, how has this affected your work and how have you and your team collaborated physically to put this all together? You're absolutely right. So we've had to work virtually. Basically, all but one of our lab team members is working from home. There's one person who's accepting samples um, from patients and who's also um, occasionally running experiments. But but everyone else, we are all working from home. And so that, of course, presents challenges when you're a lab that likes to experiment with samples and likes to run run experiments. Uh, you can't do that when you're virtual. So we're spending a lot more time doing computational analyses and um, and these sort of analyses on on, on big data that um, that we can do virtually. Um, trying to uh, we've used tools like slack um, to be able to stay on in touch with one another that's been really helpful a lot of zoom calls um, which i think the whole the whole world is, is doing a lot of but we're really just trying to stay on top of things because um, COVID-19 is just it has wreaked havoc on the world and so we're doing everything we can to help in that fight and then at the same time as you and I have discussed before, there are 7,000 rare diseases that affect 30 million Americans, and none of those diseases have gotten any easier than they ever were before. If anything, they actually maybe are harder to treat right now because uh, healthcare uh, utilization is so challenging in the setting of COVID-19. So we can't take our foot off the accelerator against Castleman disease. So we're you know fighting COVID, keeping our foot on the accelerator for Castleman disease and continuing to try to advocate for drug repurposing on a global scale. Um, there are some really great examples where drugs that were developed for one condition could be effective for others. And you know, I'm, I'm alive thanks to one of those drugs. And I'm just really hopeful that there'll be some silver linings that come from this. This has been just an awful pandemic um, and nothing could make this positive. But if some silver linings like Groups continue to collaborate the way that I've seen. There's been a really unprecedented amount of collaboration within the medical and scientific communities. If we can keep that collaboration going, boy, that would be an amazing silver lining. If we can uh, be as resourceful in thinking about drug repurposing and about really looking at every drug from every angle and how it might be able to help other diseases, then that would be a, a terrific silver lining. And if all of us can um, really kind of adopt this sense of overtime that I think COVID-19 has given us, I mentioned overtime at the very beginning, um, and that's the, 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 I guess, the analogy I use for how I feel and how I live, that I have this extra time that I didn't think that I would have. And overtime and, and feeling like you don't, you don't know when your clock's going to run out um, can create real fear and anxiety, but it also can provide you clarity. And you can say, well, the clock is ticking. Uh, I'm going to do the thing that is most important to me. And that's what overtime does in sporting events. The clock is ticking down. You have limited time, which gives you intense focus on, on the task at hand. I think COVID-19 has created a similar sort of sense of overtime amongst all of us that I've been 
kind of coping with for the last almost 10 years, we all all of a sudden recognize that we we potentially do have a limited amount of time and that this virus could hit us or someone we love out of the blue, um, which is totally and completely frightening. Um, but I hope that we can all begin to transition um, from the fear that comes with being in overtime to the realization that We've actually always been in overtime. COVID has just kind of brought it to light that we're in overtime, and, and to use that to, to to create some clarity within our lives um, around what's most important. And, and if there are things that we're hoping for and things we're praying for, whether it's a family member stays safe or it's something in our lives that we really take action um, because we recognize that there is urgency here. So I'm hoping that there can be some macro um, effects uh, uh, and, and silver linings, but I'm also hoping that some of these lessons that I learned, I'd say the hard way from nearly dying five times from cytokine storms and these lessons that I, I share through Chasing My Cure, I'm really hopeful that those lessons, um, which feel really relevant today, um, can also um, really be permeated uh, throughout based on what we've all gone through. The Corona database is available for free at cdcn.org forward slash Corona. David Fagenbaum of the Faculty of Penn Medicine and the Orphan Disease Center there, co-founder and executive director of the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network and author of Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. David, thanks as always. Thanks so much for having me. Stay safe. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, Subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.